Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, were included in Christ when you heard the, tr the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as I said, these are the words of uh, Pastor John Maidendorf as he uh, put together this message for this evening called Predestined to Adoption based upon this scripture passage. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the past number of years, there has been a big emphasis on the importance of diversity in all sorts of fields, diversity in business, in corporations, in government, in management, and not least, in the church. There is no doubt that working alongside people who have a different point of view than we do, who have different cultural assumptions and different life experiences, enriches us. And when we're able to work together, we are able to accomplish incredible things. Our strengths cover each other's weaknesses. We're able to foresee and address issues that we might have missed on our own, and we're able to learn to appreciate and even love things that we would never have been exposed to on our own. The benefits of diversity are evident. There isn't much argument, at least, that I've seen about whether diversity is a good thing or not, and yet it continues to be elusive. And not just in the church, in every field in business, corporations, and management, in government. All these claim that diversity is a major goal, if not the major goal. And yet true diversity remains, it seems, just out of reach. And it's fascinating because there have been a bunch of studies and reports and writings on this now. Last year, he says, I read a book called Disunity in Christ by Christina Cleveland, a Christian sociologist and writer from the United States, and she explores themes of prejudice and inclusion in her work. 
And it turns out, maybe to no one's surprise, that our brains are kind of wired to automatically trust people who are like us and distrust people who are different than we are. We naturally create these mental categories of us and them, and we trust us and distrust them. And this is true even when people like us make really terrible mistakes. Even when people who we think are like us make really awful mistakes, we're more ready to forgive, more ready to give them a second chance, more willing to continue to extend trust to people who are like us than we are to people who we perceive as different. And that's an obvious obstacle to, to diversity then because it means that if we're going to have diverse teams, diverse churches, diverse governments, diverse communities, we have to be constantly vigilant and intentional about extending trust to people who our fallen, sinful brains tell us we shouldn't trust. Pursuing diversity means choosing not to trust your own natural instincts and instead choosing what is right. And that's the kind of issue that the Apostle Paul is stepping into here in the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians. This letter is what scholars call a cyclical letter. It isn't written to just one church. It's written to a bunch of churches in a region. And so Paul wrote this letter mostly to people studying, who study these things. I think he probably wrote this letter while he was in prison in Ephesus. And one of his colleagues, probably Tychicus, who was mentioned at the end of the letter, would have taken this letter and traveled around to the small Christian communities in and around Ephesus and read this letter to the gatherings of Christians. And some of these worshiping communities of Christians are Christian Jews who meet in the synagogue, some are communities of converts from paganism. Some are gatherings of the wealthy Romans in suburban estates. Some are gatherings of multi-ethnic tradespeople and slaves from across the Roman Empire meeting in the downtown core. Some are for gatherings of farmers and field laborers in the countryside. And a good number of them are probably some mixture of all these realities, Jew and Greek, Roman and barbarian, Scythian and free, slave and free, male and female. And Paul is writing, is trying to write a letter to all these diverse and very different worshiping communities to try and give them direction about how to live faithfully as followers of Jesus, while at the same time promoting a sense of unity and belonging in and between these different groups. Now that's a challenge for all the ages. But the way Paul accomplishes this right from the beginning is by rooting all of these different people in a common story. And that might be lost on us a little bit because we're separated from Paul by two millennia and 8,500 8, kilometers. But this is what Paul does in all his letters to the churches. He's writing to all these gatherings of Christians from different backgrounds, and he's trying to root them in the stories of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament and show how through Jesus and the salvation that he brings, Paul's stories are their stories. The stories of God's exclusive, special, set-apart, holy, chosen people include them. 
Romans and Greeks and Scythians and slaves and people from all walks of life and all social classes. In Jesus Christ, they have been invited into the big and grand story of God's redemption of the world through his chosen people. For those with ears to hear, Paul's prayer here calls to mind the story of the Exodus. And this is so often what we find with the Apostle Paul. Even though he's telling people the story of Jesus, he's telling it through the interpretive lens of God's Old Testament promises, the stories of God's deliverance of his people Israel. And so in praising God for the miracle of inclusion in his holy set-apart people, Paul uses the language of choosing and adoption. Just like Moses in the Exodus story was chosen by God to deliver his people and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, just like the people of Israel were chosen by God and adopted as his children. Paul uses the language of Passover calling to mind that powerful and disturbing story of how the angel of death came upon Egypt but the people of God were spared by the blood of the Lamb spread on the doorposts. And Paul uses the language of inheritance, just as Israel was promised the inheritance of the promised land and assured of that inheritance by the presence of God's glory in the pillar of fire and cloud as they wandered through the wilderness. Adoption, Passover, inheritance. Those three themes bring us back to the Old Testament story of God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And Paul tells this story in such a way that it becomes a unifying story for the people of God, for the people who God has formed and shaped through the deliverance and salvation of Jesus the Messiah, whose promise extends beyond Israel to the nations. We are adopted by God in Christ. We are delivered from slavery by the redemptive power of the blood of the Lamb. We are heirs of the inheritance of God's people, marked with the seal of God's glorious presence in our midst. And we are included in this story, Paul says. We are adopted into this story. This past week, I read a book by Kelly Nikondea, a Christian writer and a community organizer. The book was called Adopted, the Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. And in this book, Nicondea traces the theme of adoption through the Bible, beginning with the adoption of Moses by the daughter of Pharaoh and tracing the theme through Paul's letters. And this is a powerful, important theme for her because as she shares in her book, she herself is adopted and so are her two children. Adoption is an inescapable reality of her life and being. Her life and the lives of her children have been radically transformed by the miracle of adoption. And one of the things that she reflects on is how the reality of adoption cracks open our traditional understanding of family. We often act like family is just a fact of life, like we're born into a particular family and that's just the way it is. And it can blind us from the reality that family is always a choice. In our fractured and mobile world, family is a choice we have to make, a commitment that we have to renew continually. We create families around us through the relationships that we choose to foster and nurture, 
And many of us know the reality of feeling more like family in the company of, the, of close and beloved friends than distant or estranged blood relations. But adoption is unique because adoption is an intentional choice to become family and it requires choice, relinquishment, acceptance, reciprocity, and repair. Adoption is a powerful and unique metaphor for what the gospel is all about, Nicodemus argues. Because in adoption, we embrace the other in an intentional and systematic way through habits of welcome and committed hospitality. And these habits of welcome and hospitality are what pave the path to acceptance. In, adoptance, in adoption, they become we. And in the process, we are transformed to see the world, family, church, gospel in a different way. Pastor John writes, I experienced this miracle in the life of my own family too. I grew up in the Dominican Republic, an island country in the Caribbean where my parents were missionaries with the Christian Reformed Church. And just before my seventh birthday, my parents sat down after supper for a sat us down after supper for a family meeting and told us that one of their friends was very sick. And they had asked mom and dad if they would adopt their two youngest daughters, Isabel and Belkis. Now we knew Isabel and Belkis and their mother. They were part of a church in a small village that my mom and dad worked with regularly. We prayed, we played together during the long church services and had been over to their house for a Sunday meal more than once. We knew them and loved them, but adopting them, that was a different story. Isabel and Belkis were both older than me, so I went from being the oldest child to being the middle child. In brackets, he puts a fact that has always intrigued people who think they know something about psychology. We made room in our house, transforming the guest room into a girl's room. We got really serious about learning Spanish, since Isabel and Belkis didn't know English yet. Mom and Dad carved time out of their schedules to tutor the girls in English. We got a bigger car to fit seven instead of just five. We had to learn new habits, new rhythms of life, to create room in our house, to create room in our lives for these two new sisters. And it blew open our understanding of what it means to, feel, to be a family. When my sister's mom died 22 years ago, we mourned together. When they got their American citizenship, we rejoiced together. When they graduated high school and then college, we partied together. When they got married and had kids, we celebrated together. They became we. They became family. And that's the same miracle that happens in the gospel, Paul says. They becomes we in Christ. This is the promise and the goal of God's redemptive action throughout history. Paul says as much in verse 10 of this passage, the mystery of God's will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is our inheritance. And that's what creation is about in the ancient world. We think of adoption as being about creating belonging or creating family. 
that's a beautiful thing, but in the ancient world, adoption is always about inheritance. We see this in the stories of the Caesars of Rome. Right from the beginning of history of the Caesars, Julius Caesar adopts Augustus Caesar, ensuring that he has an heir to the power of the Roman Empire. In the ancient world, adoption is about consolidating and controlling power, controlling what happens with the inheritance. But in the gospel, that power is spread far and wide because in Christ, Paul says, we are all adopted as heirs. That's why our translations often keep this gender reading of adopted to sonship. Because it was the first, it was the firstborn son, or the one who was adopted as the firstborn son, who received the inheritance. And in Christ, Paul says, we're all God's firstborn sons. We are all heirs. Heirs of what? What is this inheritance? What is the inheritance we are promised? For ancient Israel, even in Paul's day, the promised inheritance was seen as the land of Canaan. The land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for their descendants to live in. In North American Christianity, we tend to spiritualize the promise of inheritance. And so we often think of our inheritance in Christ as being about our personal and individual promise of salvation. But, Paul says, that the inheritance we are promised, the inheritance that we're insured of by God's presence in our midst through the Holy Spirit in our lives, the inheritance that we are promised is nothing less than the redemption of all things under the banner of our King Jesus. Our salvation, our election, our adoption as children of God is just one part of God's magnificent plan to redeem the whole of creation. One step along the way to the mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be accomplished when the times reached their fullness to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is why we were chosen. This is why we have been invited in. Paul tells us that our imagination for the inheritance is too small. It's not the land of Canaan. It's not personal salvation. Our inheritance is the kingdom of Jesus on earth. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John has a vision of the incredible inheritance, and it's huge. He, calls an, he hears an angel calling out the roll call of the redeemed from the people of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, and so on. 144,000 in all, 12,000 from each tribe. And then he turns and looks, and what he sees is a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, crying out in unity and in unison, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This great multitude from all nations singing glorious praises to the King of Kings, this is our inheritance. This is our promise. This is our destiny as God's people. After our family adopted Isabel and Belkis, things changed. 
Things changed in our house. Things changed in our lives. Our weekly and daily rhythms, our family rituals, it all changed. But he writes, probably the greatest thing that changed was Thanksgiving dinner, especially once we moved to the States. Thanksgiving dinner for many people is a time for family. It's actually the biggest travel day of the year in the United States, bigger than Christmas, as people jet about from one side of the continent to another to get home for this quintessential family gathering. But in our family, Thanksgiving dinner became an opportunity to live out the hospitality that Jesus had shown to us in our own lives. Jesus had taught us that family is a choice, a choice that you have to make every day, really. And Thanksgiving became an opportunity for us to choose our family in Christ. And so every year we had what to an outside observer would probably look like a strange collection of people, a mixed family transformed by adoption. We expanded our table to welcome students who couldn't make it home, recent immigrants who had no family to celebrate this strange new American holiday with, young adults estranged from their parents, middle-aged couples estranged from their children, from Nicaragua and Nigeria and El Salvador and Russia and Vietnam. A microcosm of God's inclusive, diverse family adopted as heirs of God in Christ gathered together for a feast to celebrate all that God in his great love and mercy has done for us. A picture of what we read about in Revelation. That's our inheritance. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the incredible inheritance that we have in Christ. An inheritance that perhaps we often think way too small of. We thank you that you have adopted us as your children. And that you are adopting more people all the time and they is becoming we. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your word. We thank you that you point us to the day when thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands will be gathered before the throne, singing praise and glory to you and living with you forever on the new earth. Oh Lord, you are good. You are great. We thank you for your grace in Christ Jesus. Hear our prayer. And allow us to leave this place and walk through this week with a song of praise in our hearts and on our lips for your goodness and for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>